Right, please turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. Uh, you know, last year, my daughter Anna Joy and I went to um, Lowe's. It was right before Halloween. It was right before Halloween. We walked into Lowe's, and it was completely decorated for Christmas, which is awesome. I thought that was absolutely wonderful, uh, you know, because I love Christmas. I like singing the hymns all year round. My daughter loves Christmas as well. She likes to cook and bake and decorate and uh, plan the parties. And so we were just, man, we were absolutely and completely and utterly loving it. And I know that um, some people in this world don't like that, to which I just say, bah humbug to you, right? I mean, I really, I, I read a survey a couple of years ago that said 63% of Americans are annoyed that decorations for Christmas go up for Halloween. In the same survey, though, 27% of Americans start their shopping on Labor Day. And I just say, that's just hypocrisy, right? Let's just embrace the season fully and completely. I remember when I was a kid, my grandfather would leave his lights up all year long, right? And some people would say, oh, he's just being lazy. But you know, I'd come in the summertime, grandpa, turn on the lights and there are the lights. And I just, I love it, right? I love Christmas time. I love the celebration. I love the reminders. Uh, But I know as well that for some people during the season, it's actually difficult and hard. There's uh, sorrow associated with this time of year because uh, statistically speaking, their mortality rates are higher during Uh, Christmas and New Year's more than any other time of the year. And so for some people, they enter the season, and it's also uh, kind of a season of loss. And so it's difficult at times to remember the point of the holiday. Sometimes it's uh, because of sorrow and loss that clouds over. Sometimes it's just Walmart's fault, right? That's just, you know, all the glitter and the lights and the presence and the distraction. But that's why we do Advent. We stop and we have several weeks that kind of ramp us up and remind us of Advent or arrival. The eternal Son of God somehow came to earth and took on human flesh. Fully God and fully man in one person. And, you know, that's one of the greatest doctrinal mysteries of uh, all that God has revealed to us. And, And yet it's true. Fully God, fully man fully man so that he could live a perfect life on this earth and then die a perfect death so that we could have eternal life in him. That's an incredible gift that we have. I love this uh, statement by Augustine. He once said, man's maker was made man that he, the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on his journey, that truth might be accused of false witness. The teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die so that we might live. And so that's why we celebrate this season. And this morning, what I'd like for us to do is to go to one of these, really, I would say, one of the most important passages that talks about the incarnation, that is God becoming flesh, God with us. Isaiah chapter 7, I'd like for you to read with me the first two verses Isaiah 7 says this. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up against Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped just north of you in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest. Shake with wind. 
Now, let me give you a little bit of uh, background. The setting is 735 BC, right? So we're in the time period of, of the divided kingdom. Let me show you what it looks like geographically. So this is after David. It's after Solomon. It's after Rehoboam. Israel has been divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is actually called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And at times they would have a peaceful relationship, but many times they were also at war. And what's happening in 735 BC is that the northern tribes of Israel have allied themselves with the nation of Syria, or the the Arameans. And they have decided to rebel against Assyria. That is all of this area of the Fertile Crescent that is colored. Assyria was the most powerful nation on earth at that time, but Syria and Israel decided that they would rebel against Assyria. They would no longer pay their taxes and tributes, and they want Judah to join in their alliance. But Ahaz says, no, I'm I'm not going to join in your alliance. As a result, Syria and Israel decide that they're going to attack Judah because they don't want an enemy just to their south. They don't want to have an exposed flank to the south. And so they come against Judah. And Ahaz has to make a choice. Will he join their alliance? Will he give in? Will he fight against? Will he try to find another foreign alliance? Will he choose to ally himself with Assyria or go south and ally himself with the Egyptians? What will he do? And all of the people are in dread. And the Lord speaks to Ahaz and he says, Ahaz, be calm. I hear the cry of my people. I see what's going on. I understand. And we know God doesn't actually literally have eyes and ears, right? He doesn't have a nose. He's described sometimes in those anthropomorphic terms, but he doesn't literally have those things. So when it says that God sees, it means he's paying attention. God hears, he's, he's actually listening and knows what's going on, and he understands. And, you know, we think we understand, but God does understand. Right? We often think when we're in the midst of trial and stress and the enemy seems to be crowding against us, we think we understand what's happening in our personal lives. Or we look out on the world and we see all these geopolitical cons- conflicts, and we go, well, I think I understand what's going on here. But, you know, really we don't. We, we just see a little bit. But God reminds us that he sees absolutely everything. And we're really struggling, but he's not. He's not frightened. He's not fearful. He's not caught off guard. He knows absolutely everything that's happening. Now, let me give you an analogy. Many of us are going to go to family meals in the next uh, few days. And uh, for you kids, you're going to be tempted during these family meals to take advantage of your elders, right? Um, There'll be people who are sitting at the table who they don't see quite as well, they don't hear quite as well, and and you're going to be tempted to take advantage of them. You're going to be tempted, you know, just kind of whisper things real silently and softly and kind of torment them a little bit. And I'm not saying this because I ever did these things or felt this. I'm just saying, I'm I'm warning you that you're going to have these moments where, you know, it's like, hey, Grandpa, Merry Christmas, right? He's like, what? Merry Christmas, Grandpa. You're marrying Christina Goldthwait, what? You know, you're just going to be tempted in that moment because grandpa doesn't see exactly what's going on, doesn't hear, and he's trying to dial in to the conversation. And I'm I'm using that analogy just to tell you that all of you are grandpa. Okay, you're all grandpa. In your own life and in your own circumstances and things that are happening around you with your friends and your family and even in the world, you think you see, you want to see, you think you hear, you you want to hear, but you don't exactly, but God does. God sees absolutely everything everything clearly. So notice what he says. Verse three, the Lord spoke to Isaiah, his prophet, and he said, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Yeshuv, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, take care and be calm. 
Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on the account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. He says, Ahaz, I got this. Right? I see, I hear, I understand, and I care. So I mentioned earlier, I'm doing my, my, my reading time right now. I'm in the book of Exodus. And you know, the recurring refrain at the beginning of the book is this. I, I hear, the Lord says, I hear the groanings of my people. I know that you're oppressed. I know that you're enslaved right now. But, but I'm paying attention. And I care. And I can intervene. Why? Because I am, in fact, with you. Verse 5. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, they have planned evil against you, saying... Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim, that is Israel, the northern kingdom, will be shattered so it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you do not believe, you surely shall not last. He says, Ahaz, I see, I hear, I understand, and I can intervene. And I will intervene, and I am the source of your salvation. But you need to understand, I'm the only source of your salvation. So let me give you a sign. Let me prove to you that I'm going to do this on your behalf. Verse 10. So then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, and he said this, Ask for yourself a sign. From the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Ahaz said, I will not ask. And that sounds really righteous, doesn't it? Lord, no, no, you don't need to show me a sign. But let me tell you exactly what's going on here. Again, Ahaz had an opportunity here uh, to make a choice. He could choose to trust in the Lord in this moment, or he could say, you know, I think I'm going to go alone. I'm going to fight against Syria and Israel. I'm going to to set up my own independence. Or he could go to Egypt. But Egypt actually wasn't very strong at that point in time. Or he could say, I could could align myself with Assyria. Because they're the strongest nation on the earth. What will I choose to do? And what he chose to do instead was to try to remain neutral and then later to ally himself with Assyria. He chose not to trust in the Lord. So when the Lord says, ask for yourself a sign, when he says, no, I don't need a sign, it's because he's already decided what he wanted to do. And that was to not trust in the Lord for deliverance. I will not ask for a sign. I will not test the Lord. Then the Lord said, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So Zahaz, I'm going to give you a sign anyway, even though you haven't asked for one. What's the sign exactly? What's going on here? Uh, It's interesting in the Hebrew language, that word for sign, it can refer to something that's just dramatic and miraculous. But in Isaiah, normally that word for sign refers to something that's really kind of common or ordinary. Sometimes it can be an event or a person or an object that God displays a special significance upon. But the thing itself is ordinary. So what is this 
child sign in particular. I'd like to read to you from another translation from the Net Bible that I think makes it a little more clear what's going on here. It goes like this. So, so Isaiah replied, Pay attention, family of David. That is, the royal court with Ahaz who are inspecting the water supply. Remember the beginning of chapter 7. The enemies are camped just north of them in Ephraim or Samaria. And so they know they're about to be attacked. So they go to the conduit, which came up from a spring, went underground and into the city of Jerusalem. Because if their water supply gets cut off or attacked and they're trapped inside the city, they will be ruined. So they go to inspect. So all of the royal court goes out. All of the court officials go out. And they're, they're all gathered around and they're inspecting this water supply. And Isaiah shows up. Right? Isaiah shows up to confront them. He says, do you, that is all of you, plural, he's speaking to all of them, Consider it too insignificant to try the patience of men. Is that why all of you are also trying to try, are also trying the patience of my God? Verse 14. For this reason, the sovereign master himself will give all of you a confirming sign. And then he says, look, behold, this, and he's speaking of someone specific. He says, this young woman is about to conceive and will give birth to a son. And then he speaks to her and he says, you, singular, young woman, you will name him. God with us. Or in my translation, it says, uh, she will, but it's actually second person, singular. He turns to this specific woman who's standing there, who apparently had come along with the group, and he says, you, young woman, you're going to have a son, and this son is going to represent Emmanuel. Now, you're saying to yourself, wait, 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 so Brian, are you saying that this is not Jesus? I'm saying this is not Jesus. Now, before you stone me for uh, Christmas heresy, just hang on just a moment, okay? Just hang on just a moment. Notice the dialogue. They all come down. Isaiah addresses the group. And then he turns to a specific person there and he says, you, you will have a child. And what's the significance of the sign? What's going on here? Notice in verse 16. It says, for before this boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Well, what's he talking about? Before a child knows enough to refuse evil and choose good in Jewish mindset was age 12. It's the age of accountability. So Isaiah is saying, before 12 years of age have transpired for this boy, these two kingdoms will no longer be a threat to you. Now, you will be, in fact, delivered from them. Now, turn over to chapter 8 and verse 3. Isaiah says, So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son, then the Lord said to me, name him Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, for before the no- boy knows how to cry out, Father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. Two years later, Syria was wiped out. Twelve years later, Israel was beaten down. And they were dispersed in 722 B.C. So Isaiah says, before... 12 years of age, you will no longer be under any threat from these two nations. In fact, this child will be a sign that I'm present with you. I'm present to deliver you, but I'm also present to discipline you, Ahaz. Because you chose not to find deliverance from me, what's going to actually happen to you is that the Assyrians are going to come from the north and the Egyptians are going to come from the south and they're going to do battle in the land of Judah against one another. And as a result, your land is going to be decimated. Because you didn't trust in me, and I'm the only source of deliverance for you. Right? Emmanuel means that God can deliver us, that he's present with us. It also means that Emmanuel is our only source of deliverance. Just the Lord. 
And when we are threatened or when we're under stress or we're under pressure or we are in sorrow, we are tempted to go all kinds of different directions, right? Even during this season, let me eat and let me drink and let me have parties and let me buy gifts and let me receive gifts and let me accumulate. And and I'm going to pursue all of these distractions so I don't have to deal with what I'm struggling with rather than leaning into the Lord. And one of the things that the Lord does for us out of his deep, deep love is that he destroys all false hope. Because ultimately, he is the only source of hope for us. So, back to my uh, apparent heresy for just a moment, right? Uh, Is this Jesus? The answer is no and yes. It's not Jesus in this immediate context. Uh, The virgin could also be translated a young woman, and we see who she is in chapter 8, who's probably the wife of Isaiah, who's gone along with him down to this pool. So it's not Jesus, but it's also Jesus. Because what happens in Isaiah chapter 7 is the Lord is establishing a pattern for his deliverance of his people. Whenever his people are in distress, God is with us. And what happened in Isaiah is they were reminded that God is with us. And God will also be with us in a fuller and greater way through his son. Turn just two chapters later, chapter 9 and verse 6. Chapter 9, verse 6, For another child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That is, God was with his people in their immediate need. The the Syrians and the Israelites are attacking and they have another enemy that's even worse in the Assyrians to the far north. God is with them to deliver them. But that was only a temporary deliverance. But ultimately God will send his son who will be a permanent and full deliverance. That is, he will remove all of your debt of sin, that barrier, that temptation to say, let me go after other gods. Let me go after sources of distraction. Let me go after other things that I think can bring me comfort in my distress. He'll remove all of that barrier within us, but also he will remove all enemies from outside of us. And he will establish his rule and his reign on earth from Jerusalem over everything forever and ever and ever. And so what happens in Isaiah chapter 7 is just a pattern for the deliverance of God that happens in our life through the Son, Jesus. So now turn to Matthew chapter 1 and let's look at how Matthew uses this prophecy. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God is with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary as his wife. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, 
And then he called his name Jesus. He called his name Jesus. Why? Because he would save us from our sins. That is Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh saves. Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God, who sets upon the throne of David and establishes his kingdom throughout all of the world, the Lord saves. The Lord delivers. Now notice the parallels between Isaiah's day and the day of Jesus. God's people were under threat in Isaiah's day. There were literally enemies at the gate. And they had to choose, will we turn to the Lord and will we trust in the Lord as our source of deliverance and hope? Or will we take matters into our own hands? Will we fight against or find a foreign alliance? What what will we do? And they chose not to trust in the Lord. As a result, the Lord had to wipe out all false sources of hope. In Jesus' day, there were enemies inside the gate, right? The people of Israel were under foreign domination. Rome ruled over them. And so what did they choose to do? Well, initially, they tried to find this peaceful coexistence with Rome. We've got a little bit of power, and so we'll cling to that, said the spiritual leadership. And when it came, the moment of opportunity, the Lord Jesus, Son of God in human flesh, came to them and he said, I'm I'm your king. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all all of you who are distressed and beaten down, and you're carrying a load that you just can't bear any longer. Come to me if you're weary and heavy laden. I will give give you rest. I'm, I'm your king. He offers himself as king. And what do they do? They said, no, we, we choose Barabbas. We choose the insurrections. We choose to walk our own way. We're not going to trust in the Lord. And so what happened? Well, eventually, all of the people became tired of Rome's rule, and so they fought against the Roman rule, and Titus came in and dispersed the nation, and they were disciplined. Why? Because they didn't trust in the one source of hope. There's just one source of hope, always, 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 and it is the Son of God, right? God's chosen child. And we're tempted in the season to go all kinds of different directions, but it's only Jesus. He's the only source of hope. Let me illustrate. Any fans of Charlie Brown? I hope so. Yeah, Charlie Brown, right? Absolute uh, best ever, although Christmas Story is good and Elf is good and Santa Claus is good. But, man, Charlie Brown. I I love Charlie Brown. And I love Charlie Brown because it's a metaphor of leadership. Yeah. You know, my kids, you know, sometimes they go, oh, watching a movie with you, Dad. Really? You have to pull it apart. I go, yeah, there's, there's an illustration in here, and, and I have to preach again in a week. So let's, uh, let's pull it apart. It's a metaphor of leadership, right? Uh, here's what's going on here. Charlie Brown is appointed as the leader, but he's not a leader. And so no one wants to follow him, and there's just chaos, right? It's just crazy. It's chaos, which, if you think about it, is really strange because you've got these children running around after dark all over town and they're buying lights and trees and the school is open for them. You go, what, there, are there no adults involved in this process, right? And, and nobody's following. It's just crazy. It's chaos. So Lucy steps in and everybody follows her because they're afraid of her because she's a tyrant, right? So we've got incompetence and a tyrant, right? That's what we've got in leadership, right? And then Linus steps forward, right? Meek and mild. And he reminds them, Let me remind you who our leader really is. It's Jesus. It's the Son of God. The reason we have this season is because miraculously, eternally existent Son of God took on human flesh, became a baby, born in a manger, subjected to all of the struggles and suffering that humanity has to bear. But then he grew up living a perfect life so he could die a sinless death so that we could have 
life and Linus, in his mild manner, leads them to the truth, to focus on Jesus. And what happens? Well, they all come back together. Harmony is restored in their relationships, and they're all singing with one voice to Jesus. They're not going after all of the distractions and the beautiful trees and the presence that they all want. Instead, they're just pointed toward Jesus. Now, I have um, this really wonderful quality. Uh, I'm, I'm able to uh, take an idea or an event or somebody else's sermon. I can just pull it apart and then I can reassemble it better. Like I'm really good at tearing things apart and just, you know, just dismantling and making it something that's just a lot better. And it's a really f- wonderful thing, um, except sometimes my wife says it's not a really wonderful thing. You know, and she's like, you know, do you, just, you know, the, the voice of the critic. But I remind her, that's why God made me, right? God made me to make things better. And she goes, but not now. Right? That, so in a sense, it's kind, of, it's kind of a nice thing to see when I'm doing it for someone else. It's from a distance, but really up close and personal. It just feels like the voice of the critic. And I say that because um, I think I've got some really great qualities, but I also am fully aware that I have some really not great qualities. And yet God's son loves me. Right? Not just from a distance, but uh, up close and personal. One of my favorite verses, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And God looked into uh, our hearts, what we feel in our minds, all that we think. He sees all of our actions, not just from a distance, but up close. And he says, I love you. That's why I sent my son. And that's the, the essence of the gospel message, right? It's the essence of a reminder that the Son of God came to earth because we're broken, because we're being attacked by enemies. There are enemies inside of us, our flesh that just wants to rebel and find our own way. There, there are enemies outside of us, the world and satanic attack. And so Jesus came to rescue us, to deliver us. But he always reminds us, I'm going to have to destroy all of your sources of false hope because they're false. And they'll just lead you into, into destruction so that I can pull you into the one source of true hope, and that is my son, Jesus Christ. Right, so that's, that's why we do Advent. It reminds us that there, there's just one, and it's Jesus. Now, I want to exhort you as well that as we move into this season, we're all going to be interacting with friends and family who don't know that. And so they're scurrying around, sometimes on purpose to distract themselves, sometimes because they simply don't know any different. They don't, they don't know Jesus. And so this is a moment for us to speak that truth into their lives. I want to read to you a couple of verses from Ephesians, a book we were studying earlier this semester. End of the the book, chapter 6, Paul closes with these words, chapter 6, verse 18. He says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And then he says, Now pray on behalf of of me in particular, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul ends this letter to the Ephesians and he says, would you pray for me that I wouldn't be afraid? 
The great apostle Paul says, would you pray for me that I wouldn't be afraid? Instead, that I would step into these moments where I get to declare that Jesus Christ is the only source of salvation. I would do it with boldness, right? With grace and truth and kindness. And, and really, that's my prayer for us over the holidays, that as we're sitting around meals or we're watching a football game, we're doing whatever, we're going fishing or hunting with friends and family, that we would look for those opportunities. We take those opportunities to step boldly into conversations about Jesus Christ, remembering that if our friends and family don't know Jesus, then they really don't have hope. All that they have is false hope. And what I pray for us as a church is that we'd have boldness in those moments. We'd come back in the new year and we'd be able to say, you know, I, I had those spiritual conversations. You know what? Some of them turned directly to the gospel. Or maybe some of you can say, I saw my father. I saw my mother. I saw my uncle. I saw a cousin. Make that decision. The light went on and they trusted in Jesus Christ. Best Christmas ever. Best Christmas ever. Join me in prayer. Father, I do pray for us that we would have boldness and confidence. I pray that we would have passion. I pray that we would live in truth and not be deceived that there's any other source of hope than your son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you were able and willing to wrap yourself in human flesh to rescue us from the sin that had doomed us, a great enemy of death that was hanging over us like a shroud. And you've pulled it back. You've removed it forever. We have life and we have hope. It's only in your son. And I pray, Father, that we'd celebrate that and embrace it. Grateful hearts this season. And also, Father, that we would be generous people. We'd look at those around us and courageously, boldly point them to your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We will see you next week. Remember, just evening services. So don't come in the morning.